And so I said, maybe we should be doing like single malt scotch because if we build a malting floor, we're, we're that much more authentic to the flavor of the thing. And we're biochemists, right? So it's like, you want a malt. The flavor creation of the malt is exactly what we want. I've got to make single malt whiskey because it was just, it was just obvious that that, that was where the really cool flavor complexity uh, was going to be. And welcome back. This is episode two of Single Malt Matters, the American Single Malt Whiskey podcast. Uh, I'm Matt Drew with the first of a three-part series talking with Mr. Stephen Osborne, who is the founder of Stout Ridge Winery and Distillery in Marlboro, New York, which is right on the Hudson River in southeast New York State. So first off, a quick disclaimer. Uh, Steve and I are friends. We met last year in Bozeman, Montana at an advanced malting course. Uh, I also source grain for him, which we talk about a little bit in episode two. Uh, so just remember that because it will come into play later in the podcast. Okay, so here's the thing, though. He makes really good whiskey. So when we get to the tasting bit in episode three, and I'm talking about how good the stuff is, it's not just because we're friends. It really is delicious whiskey. Okay, getting episode two kicked off with Mr. Stephen Osborne from Stout Ridge Winery and Distillery. Uh, so before we get into anything specific um, about what you're doing today, I want to talk a little bit about how you got here. What was the path that really led you to distilling in the first place? So um, I was thinking about this question a lot and thinking, actually, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> um, and I think... When I look back, like on, on when did I first like think about what I wanted to do with my life? You know, I, I think I kind of had like an inkling back late in high school because you're under the pressure to figure out where you're going to go to school. And there's a really good, uh, my, so one thing you need to understand to understand um, what's going on here. My mother's an artist and my dad's a physicist. So Worlds collide. I always wanted to do some kind of marriage of art and science. Uh, and preferably hard science, because dad's a physicist, right? So um, so by the end of high school, I had gotten this idea. There was a local school where I grew up in Western New York um, that's a top-rated ceramic engineering school. And so ceramics is really nice physical science and materials science, and, um, and metal oxides have a lot of color to them. And I thought, well, this would be kind of cool, because when I looked around at what people were doing with ceramics and art, um, they were painting the ceramics, and I thought, well, that's pretty stupid because the ceramics can have a beautiful color because of what they are. And so that's also been, I think, something that's always been very attractive to me, that, that the thing that you're examining is what it is. It's not, there's no facade to it, right? That what you're, what you're experiencing is the thing itself. It's not some peculiar way of looking at the thing or some altered view of the thing. So it kind of, I think it really is where, how I ended up all the way into single malt whiskey, because single malt whiskey is that. Single malt whiskey is a window on, on a field of grain that went through a germination process and then was, you know, and, and so it, it is exactly what it is. And that, I think that's what's so attractive. And as a winemaker, um, for example, I never like using oak in wine because oak provides this sort of unnatural, it's a veneer. It's like, it's, so I think that's really what happened to me is that um, I didn't go to that ceramic engineering school and that was, that was good because I ended up going to a liberal arts school that gave me a broad education um, at Cornell University. 
And I was able to sort of pursue whatever I wanted to pursue and sort of, I sort of got that idea, well, I want to do something that has to do with science and art. And I had that idea of a color thing. And I liked the ceramics for the reason I was just talking about. And I got on some ideas about what to do with color when I was in college, but um, nothing was really working right until I met a winemaker. And as soon as I met a winemaker, it all fell into place because wine is one of those things that the art and the science and the thing is exactly what it is, right? And so as you taste a wine, you can experience the vineyard, what happened to the vineyard, all the, um, all the things the winemaker chose along the way. And it's all transparent, at least it's supposed to be, which is sort of my argument against oak and wine is where's the transparency? You know, what, what, is, what is that choice? And so I ended up, getting a degree in food chemistry, biochemistry, and uh, thinking fermentations. And, um, but I wanted to study it more, and I wasn't really very satisfied with how it seemed wine was being made. I wasn't, it, this was in the Finger Lakes in the mid 80s. It seemed to me like they were doing things that weren't honest to what wine was supposed to be. Of course, you're making a commercial product, and you know you have to you have to do what's involved there. So, so after Cornell, I went on to UC Davis to study winemaking. I thought, well, I'll really get to the heart of it here. I got involved in uh, mineral uptake in vineyards because that whole thing about the idea of terroir, right? Is there really a quality in the wine that has to do with the? And I thought, well, this is really good because. The mineral uptake has to be some sort of a subtle thing. And maybe the guys that are serious about the mineral uptake, the terroir, are going to be the guys that are making wines that are true to themselves and that are this mix of art, uh, art and science. And so, um, but what I ended up sort of finding out was that the realities of how wine is sold commercially mean that you really have to put a facade on it. You have to put a facade that to me was greater. It's like painting the ceramic. You know, what's the point of using an exotic metal oxide to achieve color in ceramic if you're going to paint it? You know, it's like <laughs> no one can see what this thing is. You know, how are you going to see through to the wine? So I kind of got a degree from UC Davis in winemaking that I don't really use very much, except that it was, you know, it informed me along the way. I never would have gotten to where I am without knowing those things. And I think one of the ways to navigate your way through the world in a way that you want is to, you got to know an area larger, larger than the area you're trying to navigate. You have to be going within a known space. And so I'm really happy to have sort of got that all sorted out in my head as to what it is to create a facade in wine. And I think this carries through exactly to whiskey. Typical American whiskey is that sort of idea of this whiskey that has a facade on it and it's beautiful art and yeah, you painted the thing, but it's a painting, so, so get over it. But what attracts me to single malt whiskey is that single malt whiskey, um, to my mind, is something that can be um, like the way I make wine. It can, it can be exactly true to itself. You can be showing, you know, what was the conditions like in the, the field where the barley grew. Um, and it can show all the way through to the finished product. So, and although I would, I would also add to that is even though I don't like using a lot of oak or sugar or things in winemaking, um, I've really, as I've become a distiller, it doesn't bother me so much. I like the art a lot better in whiskey. I like the facade a lot better in whiskey. It's, it's a lot easier to explain. And, and, and I think the industry is not trying to hide anything. Where in the wine industry, there's, there's always sort of this wink and nod, yeah, the wine tastes like the soils on the hillside, but 
no, it doesn't taste fermented. You know, it's like, well, something's missing there. So yeah, so, so I was interested in art and science and I got on this ceramics thing, which I think that was a really good thing. It took me a long time to come to that idea. It took me a couple of years. And so then I was going to go study that. And then now I need to, I need to know more than that. And uh, that, that brought me to wine and then wine, made wine for a long time. And, and back then, you know, there's no, you know, there's no small distilleries, right? The, the laws hadn't come around yet that allow small distilleries to exist. And what kind of time frame are we talking about here? Oh, we're talking, yeah, we're talking a time frame of um, when I was 18 to when I was, well, the distilling, I started distilling when I was 50. So that's a 32 year time frame that I just took you through. Okay, I mean, we, wow. a lot of it was, we didn't really talk about the after. So after school, I became a winemaker and I got interested in making um, wines that had no facade, wines that had no introduced art, wine that were natural art. Um, and so the wines that I make, we use no sulfites, no chemicals of any sort, no water, no sugar additions, no pumps, no filters. The wines are literally untouched wines from beginning to end. Um, and that is a hard road to hoe. You don't do it. <laughs> you know, I, I was saying, man, you really make these unique wines, you know, that are just pristine and untouched wines. I go, yeah, man, it's, it's really, really difficult. Um, to be a guy that's um, that's trying to take perfect pictures uh, and then place them in a in a room full of oil paintings. So I think of you know the oil paintings being normal wine, wine that is made for for typical market conditions. You know they don't refrigerate the trucks. Um, the banks give you nine months. I don't release white wines till they're seven years old. So. So yeah, I think I think that's really it was funny because I hadn't really thought about that in in quite a while. But because I usually tell people, well, it's I discovered wine and I saw this transparency of this thing that is what it is, and then because of market conditions, you put the facade on it, just mirror image of the ceramics thing. But I hadn't really ever thought back to that ceramics. But I think the ceramic thing really it shows you that I'm like, and I was 16, so I was 16 when I got that idea. So. I've been the same person for a long, long time. I think, and I think that's true of a lot of people. Is that your your formative years are early on. I was just lucky enough to have the stupidity to just never stop pursuing that initial goal of let's create art and nature and let's have the natural art be the thing that shows through. And so the explanation of the art is the nature, which is how I think of cinema. So how and when did you seriously start thinking about whiskey and distilling? So when we decided to, when my wife and I decided <laughs> to build a winery in the Hudson Valley of New York that would make completely natural wine, um, we can't ship it. It takes years to make. How are you ever going to get a bank to go along with that? You know, it takes seven years for me to make a white wine that I can't ship. And then when people show up, I have to explain it because they've never tasted something quite like it which that's a very appealing idea to me, but for a bank, that's like, wow, you know, you should probably not do this kind of a thing. But my wife and I, are, we're both um, chemists. We have a lot of background, a number of degrees, you know, related to flavor chemistry. And, and it was in 2004 was when we finally sort of said, you know what, you know, we might be able to attract a bank. And part of the reason was there was a credit bubble that was just this massive credit bubble. Banks had forgotten how to lose money. That's a pretty good time to approach a bank for a loan. So we went to a bank and said, look, we got this really crappy idea. 
You know, we want to build a winery that takes years to make wines that people won't understand and we can't ship them. And they said, yeah, that's, that's crappy. We agree. So then we thought, well, you know, I had been thinking about this a lot. And way back when I was at Cornell, first thinking, I met the winemaker and I, did, I took everything I could at Cornell relating to wine. I remember in, in one back office somewhere, there was a still, and we were talked a little bit about distilling. At that time, nobody is going to Cornell to study distilling. They, I mean, the still is there just sort of as, you know, well, we should probably show them what a still looks like, you know, maybe something like that. But uh, it always kind of stuck with me because I remember the professor telling me that, you know, one of the nice things about having a still is if your wine doesn't turn out so good, it might make really good brandy. So fast forward back again, my wife and I are approaching the bank and we have a crappy idea and they agree. And so I said, well, you know, here's a, here's a thing that if we make wine the way that I, I like to make it, no chemicals, no sulfites, you can distill it into very superior brandy. And we're in a cold climate. We're in an old grape growing zone. They've got a, a lot of this grape called Seval Blanc and Seval Blanc should make very good brandy. It's a fairly neutral grape. It's everything sort of like you'd look at in Cognac or Armagnac. For, for what kind of grapes would you like to grow? And so we said to the bank, you know what? If people don't like our wine, we're just gonna vaporize it, condense it a couple times and make some brandy. And it should be very, very superior brandy. Uh, and I have a lot of experience in tasting. And I said, no, I should be able to make decent brandy. I said, this is, this is a good thing and that'd be kind of fun. So here's the thing, we got this crappy idea and when it doesn't work, we'll turn it into brandy and the brandy will add value and the brandy will show off the same things we're trying to show off. So we're still in the game. We still have the enthusiasm. You've still got your salespeople. You've got your building that's producing um, this wine that may or may not work, but this brandy that will definitely work. You know, so that starts to look like a good idea. And this is a, this is a pretty good way to approach a bank when, when you have a bad idea, is to show them that when it goes wrong, you make more money. Um, so the bank's like, well, that, that's a good idea. And I said, well, I said, it isn't really that great an idea because Americans don't drink brandy. Or if they do drink brandy, it's, it's like they don't really understand brandy. So it's kind of a good idea, but it's not the greatest idea. Sure, it's better than seven years to make wine they, they've never tasted, but um, it's still a hard, difficult thing. So the bank said, well, then, so what are you gonna do? I said, well, I've got this other idea. I got this idea that if when we're distilling, we, we go really deep into the hearts. We take the heads and we take the tails and we go really deep into the hearts. And we say, okay, that's our brandy. But of course we've lost a lot of alcohol, but not to worry because we're going to buy a still that's going to take that, the tails and the heads and we're going to redistill it until we have really good vodka. I said, I think I, think I can do really good vodka. In fact, I, I think I understand what vodka is, is striving for. And I think that I can make a better brandy from my, from my weird wine. And in the process of making the better brandy, I should be able to make really good vodka. And I thought, and I said to the bank, I said, that's gonna sell. There's no way vodka's not gonna sell. And the bank agreed and we got our loan. So what went into the process of deciding how you were going to distill? Like, why did you pick the stills that you did? So we built the building. 
And we started making our wine, and of course we weren't selling it at first, so what we were doing is we were selling wine from the Finger Lakes. We are like an outlet for Finger Lakes wine in the Hudson Valley. A lot of fun, a lot of my old friends up from Cornell and up from the Finger Lakes. And um, so at that point, we're thinking, well, we better buy these stills, because the bank is expecting us to do something when this all falls through. <laughs> so we went to a seminar, it was 2006, it was winter, it had to be December. December 2006, Christian Carl was putting on a distilling seminar at Cornell, and um, they were, it was a practical seminar. By then, Cornell had bought a little Christian Carl still, and so Christian Carl would come and give these lessons on how to distill. So a lot happened at Cornell between when I graduated and, <laughs> and then. And so we went to this seminar, and we were, we we're pretty impressed um, by, the, by the Christian Carl, and they seemed to really know what they were doing. They seemed to really have the science down, and we, we appreciated that. And uh, Ralph Arenza was there. It would later start Tuttletown, or had already started Tuttletown. And he had purchased a Christian Carl still. And there was other people that were thinking about it. You know, this is early. This is 2006. And so, so Kim and I talked to the Christian Carl guys and we said, look, we kind of sold the bank on this idea that we'd make better brandies from non-sulfited wine. And they, they lit up. They were like, oh, my God, this is awesome. They said, okay, well, we suggest you buy... Um, you buy a column still, you buy a five-plate column still. That way, uh, it doesn't really matter which grapes you use. He said, if we knew that you had, you, you're talking, we were talking about the Saval Blanc, and they said, if you knew you're only going to do Saval Blanc, you might do a pot still, um, you might get an Alembic still. But you've got a lot of wacky American grapes. They have a lot of strong flavors. Reminds us of a lot of plums and cherries. You're in a town with lots of plums and cherries. Buy one of these multi-purpose stills. And I think that they were very right about that. And so we said, well, we've, okay, we want to get one of those stills. And they suggested a five-plate still, which would be a very typical 125-gallon capacity five-plate Christian Carl brandy still. Drag it from farm to farm and distill whatever the farm has. I think that's kind of where that thing came from. So we got to... We were thinking about that the very night that we had talked about that to Christian Carl. And then my wife and I were like, you know, we want to have process efficiency. And she says, Steve, what would you, what would you like, how would you like to implement that? And I thought, well, you know, it'd be really nice if you had a couple of them. Because if you had a couple of them, you could do different yeast trials. And in real time, you could taste the difference, you know, or you could, um, you could be cleaning one and setting up the other. I thought, I thought there was a really good idea to having two side by side. And so the next day when we went back to Christian Carl, we said, you know, we think about maybe what if we had two side by side? And then they were really happy with that too. It was really, it was funny because not just because they were selling another still, but I think because they, they said, yeah, that's how you would really, that's, you get process efficiency by having these two stills. So I thought, well, okay, Maybe we'll put a column on one and have a, a non-column on the other. And, and at this point, Christian Carl said, look, we'll give you the second column for free if you do two stills with two columns instead of two different stills. And we're like, well, why? You know, why are you so interested? And they said, well, we, want it. we need a good picture. <laughs> so, yeah, so we buy those two stills. Um, and it, I think it was a really, really good idea to have those two. And later on, um, I think... Knowing what I know now, having learned what I've learned now, I could probably um, get away with using one instead of two. But it's really, really nice. You know, if I have a small amount of wine, I have a nice small still to run. And if I have double the amount of small wine, I have two small stills I can run. So it's really, it's worked out really, really well. Um, and beautiful stills. So at the same time, we said, look, we also need to make vodka, right? Because we told the bank we'd be making vodka. And so, and they... Once again, there we were. It was pretty obvious that that Christian Carl and and my wife and I were on the same wavelength as to as to how we should go about 
equipping a distillery. And so I said, we want to make, we want to make really, really good vodka. And it, and it turns out that if you look at, um, at the flavor profile on plate stills and you look for the most neutral flavor profile, like how many plates do you need to achieve uh, the new, most neutral flavor profile, you always end up at about 30 plates. So 30 plates is kind of where you want it, is kind of the sweet spot for making a neutral spirit. Although it's not really neutral, you know, it's not a grain neutral spirit. We're not trying to denude the spirit of flavor. We're just trying to get, you know, maximum ethanol and the least number of whatever else there is. We're trying to maximize for one chemical. It's basically what we're doing with that. So we end up getting a 30 plate and you can't really see it here and I'm not gonna drag the computer around again. One of the unique things about that is the, is the column is sitting right directly on the pot. There's no arm to the side. And we wanted that for the thermodynamic efficiency. So we also, in doing all of this, we also wanted to make a very energy efficient distillery, which is hard to do. Um, but we thought one of the ways to do it is to put the columns, is not to put the columns off to the side, right? So the heat remains in an upflow condition and you don't have the heat transferring off to a side arm. So it's a 30, it's a 30 plate column on top of a pot. The problem with that is where the pot meets the column can only handle um, about 500 pounds of weight and your column weighs about 1800 pounds. So we ended up building a steel structure all the way up to the roof. So yeah, you have to build the infrastructure in order to have the efficiency of heat. But the theory is that over time, the savings and the heat, and also that you'll just get better spirit. And, the, and Carl was indicating that, that the column right over the pot is going to, that's the way to go. So, so that's kind of a unique setup. The two brandy stills, they're both columns because Christian Carl said, get both columns uh, and we'll help you with that. And, um, and then a 30 plate still to give the most neutral possible um, without denaturing it, without removing something, right? So it's still a flavorful spirit, but it's as, as little flavor as possible, maximum number of ethanol. Um, I think those stills are, um, they're 2007. So by, by the end of the 2007, those were installed. So then what happened was the winery worked. People came, they were interested in the wine. And so that was kind of cool. That well, the wine is selling. This is this is really kind of nice. It's just my wife and I. We've got one guy in seven acres of vineyard, and we're making twenty-five thousand bottles of this completely natural wine. New York City's coming up. We're an hour and a half and away from you know from Midtown. So New York City's coming up to the Hudson Valley to taste something different, and and here we have something different and natural and whatnot, and and we like to talk about it. So that it worked out pretty well. People came up. They wanted to hear about it and they enjoyed the product. And even though it takes some explanation, we're scientists, like the explanation is, is the thing. So we were having a really good time. And so we mothballed the stills and we told the bank, relax, people like the wine. And so um, we just got into, the, into making the wine and you know, it's a whole wine culture and that whole people coming up to experience something different. And we had, we had something different that we wanted to talk about and we thought, well, you can be a better wine consumer. You, you'd be a, what a better wine consumer if you know the world of wine. So that as you're navigating through your part, the story I told before, you can understand the path you're navigating because you understand the world a little bit better. I think that's what we do in wine and, and why people love to come to our winery is that we show them that the world of wine is larger than the wine store that's full of, that's full of this art, that there's a naturalness to wine and that will show you that when you're in the store, you're in a room of art and you're not in 
the natural world. So a lot of fun. I, that, you know, that's like what we really wanted to do. So the years started going by and we were having a good time. And then um, at 10 years into selling the wine, the, the distills have been mothballed for eight, eight and a half years now, just sitting there. And um, my wife and I were like, you know, we have a distillery. We should probably use those stills. And um, what had been going on is that for a couple of years before that 10-year, oh my God, we have stills and we've never used them, we had, we had been meeting with a guy named Angus McDonald. Uh, and Angus McDonald is a distiller, and he's really into the idea of, you know, natural fermentations and, you know, open-top wooden fermenters and um, you have to malt and, 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 you know, you don't want everything pristine. You want it a little bit sort of tasting like the building and your building can't be sanitized. You know, this whole line of thinking, which is kind of, I think, kind of how people perceive how I do wine, which it's not how I do wine, but it's, it's a very similar way of thinking. And he had been coming by the winery for a couple of years before this 10-year time I'm talking about and enjoying the wines and saying you have stills back there and we're like yeah he goes well when are you going to use them and my answer was always like well we're we're doing great with wine you know and we're having fun with wine and so he was really appreciating the wine because that's how he liked to distill it became very apparent that here was a distiller that's really jazzed about how he do wine and he has a similar thinking on on how you should do um how you should do whiskey. He wasn't a brandy guy, he's a whiskey guy. So he, he later was one of the founders of Copper Sea. So you know Copper Sea Distillery that has become famous for doing um, malted rye. So he was one of the founders. He was sort of like the driving, for, if you know Copper Sea, they're all you know direct fired stills, you know, malting floor, all that kind of stuff. Well, that was Angus. So at 10 years, um, my wife and I said, okay, let's take uh, a couple of weeks and say, let's decide do we really want to do the distillery? Do we not want to do the distillery? If we're going to do the distillery, how are we going to do it? Because we don't have to do it the way that we sold the bank on. I mean, we're obviously going to make vodka. We have a vodka column, but we don't have to do that. What, what should we do? And so at the end of the two weeks, I said, you know, Kim, and I had been reading up a little bit more on distilling and, and, and I was saying, the thing to do if we really want to do a distillery, and because we don't have to make a product to save the winery, what we should do is we should make a product that that is as the winery does. And so I said, maybe we should be doing like single malt scotch because if we build a malting floor, we're, we're that much more authentic to the flavor of the thing. And we're biochemists, right? So it's like, you want a malt. The flavor creation of the malt is exactly what we want because that's that natural circumstance that shows through, right? So without the artifice attached, you can see that, that malted coming through. So, um, so she's like, okay, that's pretty cool. And then, about two weeks after that, Angus visits again. So Angus McDonald comes walking in and usual tasting. When are you thinking about distilling? I said, well, funny you should ask, is that Kim and I have just decided we're going to fire up the distillery and we're thinking maybe we should make some single malts. <laughs> and so he lights up like a Christmas tree. Um, by that point, he was in the midst of falling out with Copper Sea. So he said, well, let me, let me show you something. I said, all right. He says, I'll be back in a week and I want to show you something. All right, so about a week later, he comes in and he has this giant wooden suitcase and he flops it on this big table we have and he opens it up and there's all the sample bottles in the felt lined case with all the little numbers. I'm like, oh my God. So he, did, it was, he was really, really cool about it. He's, he said, okay, taste this. And so I'd taste it and I'd say everything that I could think of to say about it. And he said, yeah, that's this. And then it said, taste this. 
And so I'd taste it. And he said, yeah, that's a malted version of that. Now taste this. And he walked me through several different grains, malted versions of the grains. He had some single distilled, double distilled. So it was really pretty cool because by the end of that tasting, he didn't really say very much, but by the end of the tasting, I'm like, yeah, I've got to make single malt whiskey because it was just, it was just obvious that that was where the really cool flavor complexity uh, was going to be. So yeah, we, we decided to go to whiskey because it was the thing that would mimic what we were doing in wine the best in distilling. And even though we didn't have a distillery to make that kind of whiskey, we were going to re retrofit the distillery or we were going to add to the distillery in a way that we could make single malt whiskey because it, it just became, and we could make brandies, you know, but the, the problem is it's American brandy. You know, we, it hasn't really happened yet. I think, I think it will, but it, you know, we all think that these things are going to happen. They may take a long, long time. And so we said, okay, we're going to, we're going to build And by this time we had, um, we had Angus. So we had someone that, without saying anything, just tasting me on what he had done, I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. And it was, it, was, it was easy to see that this guy had it going on. I mean, he, he really had thought this through and he knew how to achieve these flavor profiles. He had some samples that were stainless steel fermented, some that were open top wooden fermented. You know, it's, it's okay, yeah, so we need to do open top wooden fermenters. You know, the whole, the whole nine yards. Okay, so this is a good point to stop and talk a little bit about malting because it's something that's going to keep coming up uh, in the podcast. And frankly, even though it's the main ingredient in single malt whiskey and beer, most people have no idea what it is or what it's all about. So malting is basically kind of a convergence of art and science. It starts with really high quality, raw, dry barley, typically, although you can malt other grains like rye, oats, and wheat, for example. So the malting process starts with a series of steeps and air rests where the barley is soaked in water for a while and then the water is drained out and the grain is basically allowed to breathe. The main point of this process is to bring the moisture content of the grain up in order to both soften the kernels and also start the germination process. So once the grain hits its target moisture content at about 33%, the germination process is in full swing, and it lasts generally around four days. Now, as the grain is germinating, a couple of really important things are happening. The first is that enzymes are being synthesized inside the barley. The second is that those enzymes then break down the complex starches in the barley that aren't accessible to brewers and distillers, and it breaks them down into a bunch of shorter chain sugars, uh, which are what yeast eventually convert into alcohol after the finished malt is mashed and fermented. Now, the job of a maltster is really interesting because they have to manipulate temperature, airflow, and humidity uh, to control the entire process from beginning to end, making sure that it doesn't happen too fast or too slow. And that in and of itself is gonna vary depending on what type of malt they want to make. They also have to make sure that uh, the the grain is mixed properly so that um, CO2 is allowed to be um, extracted and the grain has proper oxygen for respiration and also so that it it doesn't mat up because it grows these little rootlets and they like to, to mat up together and that's not a good thing either. They also dry it down or kiln it specifically to make different types of malt. 
There's a lot more to it than that, but I think that's a pretty solid functional explanation for our purposes here. Okay, so I want to dig in to your uh, on-site maltings a little bit because that's something that really sets you apart from a lot of other single malt distilleries in the country. And honestly, from the perspective of a former estate maltster, that's something that I really think is is so cool and and really such a critical piece of the puzzle to having a unique and uh, and special product. So what was kind of the thought process or the motivation that led you to make the decision to undertake such a huge project, not only the building of your own malting facility, but just learning how to malt in general? I mean, why do that instead of just buying the malt like pretty much everybody else? I think that really comes down to the fact that Kim and I are biochemists and we're interested in things to their cores. You know, to me, here, here's how the easiest way to say it is to me, malting your own malt to make a single malt whiskey, it's sort of like growing your own grapes to make your wine, right? It's sort of, or it's sort of like doing your own fermentation. It's like, what would you think of a winery that said, well, we don't ferment, you know, we buy wine and we put in casks. And it's like, well, it, it's much cooler to be a winery that ferments. And if your wine is as well, you know, we, we buy grapes from the finger, we buy grapes from a, a region, or you said, well, we buy from vineyards, that, there's the vineyard. Here's the winery. There's the fermentation tanks. You know, everybody wants that in wine. And as I said, we, we wanted to mimic that in distilling. And it's one of the nice, one of the attractive things about single malt is this added malting step, this added step to show off that you did the flavor creation step and that you have control over the flavor creation step. And then, and by the way, once you can malt, you can kiln too. So it's like, you know, it's, there's all sorts of opportunities to to express your ideas in a flavor in single malt if you do your own malting and kilning and sure you can specify to the malter saying i want this kind of kilning but i think if you're buying from a malter you're likely to take their advice on kilning i don't think you you certainly would not explore it as deeply you would not you would not for example say well what if i let the malt house get a little dirty what if the lactic acid bacteria actually help in flavor development. I mean, how clean do we want things? Do we want to inoculate with lactic acid bacteria, you know? And so you, you could never really do that with a professional malter. A professional malter is just going to be clean. You know, there, he's not, there's not going to be any added incentive to do, like, you know, maybe more organic acids will add a complexity to my single malt whiskey. No, well, they're probably malting to make beer. And you know you're not looking you're not looking for that in beer. So although maybe with sour beer, but you wouldn't you do that in the fermentation. But um, yeah, I think I think you can understand. We we want to be in charge. We want to have control over flavor development. We want our own vineyard. We want to uh, we want to make the decision on yeast. And for me, malting malting and kilting is like making the decision on how you're going to ferment and what yeast you're going to use. If you want to make that piece of ceramic that's showing off the color that it is is the color of the material you need to build a malt house uh and and i don't mind you know i don't mind the work i like i like working hard too so like the idea that it's going to be a lot of work to turn the malt well i don't know it's less than a ton you got to turn it up twice three times a day doesn't sound too bad yeah so let's talk about your malting process like what's your batch size how do you control temperature and moisture uh, just kind of walk me through your specific malting process from start to finish. So we had built a winery that that made wine in 300 and 600 gallon increments. Uh, I could put th two threes together and get a six. 
And it's really nice because that way you don't have little lots of wine laying around, right? You can, everything sort of adds up. So I had a lot of equipment that was already built for 600 gallons. So I started doing the math on if I make 600 gallon um, mashes, what does that end up with? It turns out it gives me a 50, a 50 gallon barrel of whiskey. Oh, that's pretty cool. So now I need to figure out how big my malt house needs to be so that a piece of malt makes a barrel of whiskey. Because I'm taking single malt to the end, and, and not just to take it to the end, but because I'm a scientist and it's fun to put a label on the grain coming in and then a label on the barrel and have the labels correspond, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's just people, little pieces of things aren't left over. You know, you can, you can keep track of, of how your maltings went. So we decided to build a malt house that would, um, we typically do um, 1,050 pounds of grain uh, is, a, is a, a malting. And so the idea was build a room, build a malt house that will accommodate that and, uh, and maybe make it so that we can have two malts on the floor at the same time. So um, the malt house was gonna be two malts a week, a little over a thousand pounds of malt in order to achieve 600 gallons of mash because we have those tanks laying around and that 600 gallon magically works into a 50 gallon uh, barrel of whiskey. So it seemed like, ah, you know what? We, if we do that, we're working with, we're in synergy with what we already have here. And uh, we're used to working in those quantities. And so, and also the other thing that had happened that sort of cemented that in was that Benmorrow Winery, which is a local winery in the area, and they're the oldest winery, um, operating winery in this area. And they had stainless steel tanks from the late 1950s. And the tanks that they had were brewery tanks. And they had six fermenters and the capacity was 770 gallons. And so 10 years, when we built the distillery, they were thinking of upgrading to refrigerated tanks and getting rid of these old tanks. Well, they're cool old tanks, I thought. You know, it's a part of history. You know, it's really neat stuff. And, you know, maybe down the road, we, we start buying a lot of wine to make a lot of brandy for our brandy idea. Um, we need 600 gallon tanks. So we, I bought those tanks and they're all brewery tanks. So I'm sitting here with thinking of making malt whiskey and a thousand gallon increments to make 600 gallons. And I've got half a dozen 60 year old brewery tanks, you know, that are that have a 770 gallon capacity. So I have nice airspace on top and they've worked just brilliantly. It was just, they've worked just fantastically. So, so yeah, so that's how I got into the, the quantity, the size of the floor. It's um, a 30 foot by 30 foot floor, um, which is more than enough to accommodate 2000 pounds of malt with a four inch depth. We put uh, radiant heating and radiant cooling in the floor. So the floor is, um, the floor is insulated and it, it's a eight inch thick slab and it's, we can heat it and cool it. And that pretty much controls the room. We built a nice insulated room. We have a little air conditioner heater in the room, but it doesn't have to do very much because we keep that slab at 60 degrees. And so our malts go at 60 degrees. So we have nice, nice temperature control um, via, via, via nice heat sink slab. We built a nice airy room just because it's nice to have a nice airy room. We modeled that a little bit on a picture we had seen about another malt house that had you know, nice, big, tall ceiling. And we thought, ah, that's a good idea, nice, tall ceiling, which is good for other reasons too. So then became the idea, okay, so what kind of equipment do we need to do this? And so I started getting this idea of what is the steeping about? <laughs> and um, so I said, well, I was looking at these rotary, you know, these rotary malting machines. And first of all, it's hard to find one small enough for a thousand pounds, you know? And, um, and second of all, it seemed to me like there was a lot of uh, compromises in order to get a single machine. I thought, well, what the hell? We don't, we don't need to do this. I have a local guy, really good welder. He used to work at SpaceX. 
he can probably weld a box if he can <laughs> weld a rocket. Uh, and so I said, well, maybe I'll do my own steeping regime. So I studied it a, a bit, and then I said, well, let's build a steeping box. So we built our own a steeping box. I have lots of 600-gallon tanks sitting around, so I have a 600-gallon tank that I use to fill with water uh, in order to fill the steeper. The steeper is 300 gallons. I mean, how, how cool is that? It's all the quantities I'm used to dealing with. So I put 300 gallons into the steeper. I have a recirculation system um, that takes it through um, UV, uh, UV sanitizing system. Um, I think that that actually does work. I'm not sure of that, but I think it actually does work. Two big UVs. So the water circulates. And then at first, what we did was we set it in a set of sprinklers. And the sprinklers went over the steep tank and then the malt drained through a false bottom and then it got recirculated and that was for this aeration idea but the more and more i thought about the aeration idea i thought you know this idea that it's to keep the grain alive i'm not convinced i think it's i think it's more to kill the you know kill the anaerobic bacteria so now all you got to worry about are aerobic bacteria at least you got rid of the anaerobes so i like that idea but the problem was is that this spraying of water down was just like it was just impossibly dirty it was it was impossible to keep all that clean. So we then said, scrap that. We attached a big fish tank air pump. We ejected some air into the system and we brought in water through six spigots that come out of the bottom of the steep tank, air injected, recirculated, UV cleaned water, and then we just circulated. And that's worked out beautifully since we did that. So that's sort of our system for that. We can lift out the tank and drop it back in so we can air rest it. And we were air resting just on the idea that it ends up being about two feet thick inside the steep tank. Just in the idea that that wasn't so thick that CO2 wouldn't build up, which is a really bad idea. But we thought, well, maybe, maybe it's true. But then we started measuring the temperature and we're like, we got these out of control temperatures. And we discovered the beauty of, of malting in August, you know, trying to keep things cool. And so then I'm like, shit, you know, we're, we're kind of just bumbling along. And I thought the malt's good, the whiskeys are coming out good, but it's just, it's too out of control. Uh, and when you're, you know, when you're, when you're malting for whiskey, you can over malt, you know, you can over modify and you're still okay. Um, and so that was sort of saving us, is that we had highly modified diastatic powers, well over 200. So we're losing, we're, in theory, we're losing some carbohydrate, but you know, it was, it was hard to figure where to go from there. I was thinking you refrigerate the recirculation water. Ah, how do you prevent the refrigerator from getting dirty? You know, the refrigerator becomes a contamination source for the water. It's like, I don't like any of these ideas. So then I got, um, I got wind of this malting conference that was gonna happen in Bozeman, Montana. And it was a week long of like intense. I thought, this is perfect. It'll be the middle of winter. I said, it's gonna be great because by then I will be just sick of this system I have now because I, it doesn't have enough control. And these guys must be all about control. So let's go out there, um, hear the bad news and see what I have to do to, to get more control into my system. All right, that does it for the first episode with Steve Osborne. Over the course of the next couple episodes, we'll dig into distillation a little more and get his perspectives on how to make some really distinctive and delicious whiskeys right down to the barrels he matures his single malts in. And we'll even taste some of them. 
If you have any questions about anything you heard on the podcast or suggestions on specific topics you'd like for me to dive into on future episodes, or if you're a distillery with a single malt that you'd like for me to taste and review, just send me an email. The address is asmwpodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you like what you hear so far and you'd like to help support it financially, I also have a Patreon site set up where you can contribute. I've got some different tiers set up with a bunch of different swag on there. Uh, So head over and check it out, uh, patreon.com slash ASMW, and become a patron. Our theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Michael Kirkpatrick. Thank you, Michael. His music is available all over the place, but probably the best place to check him out is at his website, michaelkirkpatrickmusic.com, for more. Until next time.